Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 2 this morning. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. A um, message entitled Divine Appointments. I, I, was, um, I was thinking back to my childhood and some of the impressionable moments. And I, I think I was probably 10 years old, somewhere between 10 and 12. I don't know how old I was exactly. But I remember I had an opportunity um, when I was young to, to ride in the Night 2000 around um, the Mini Dome. And if you don't know what the Night 2000 is, you're not old enough, um, or not old like me, I guess. But the Night you Knight Rider, you, you guys remember that, some of you older folks. Night Rider and Michael Knight and everything. I got to ride in that car around the Mini Dome. And that was huge to a 10 to 12 year old. I mean, I just remember being so excited, like talk about bragging rights, you know, uh, of being involved in something like that. And, and, you know, I think as a kid, I kind of grew up thinking, you know, I want to be a secret agent. Any other guy, gal want to be a secret agent? When you, yeah, yeah, you just want to be a secret agent. I want to have clandestine meetings and secret appointments and sneaking under the wire and, you know, all those things. And, you know, watch James Bond and Knight Rider and Nighthawk and those, all those shows, A-Team and stuff like that. You want to be either a vigilante or a, um, <laughs> or a secret agent of some kind. And, and then I thought about it, you know, I was just thinking about it. I was getting ready for this message. It's like, you know, actually doing what I do, being a Christian, that, it's kind of a dream come true. I actually am kind of a secret agent in, in, of sorts. You know, because things have happened. You know, I mean, there's been times where, where God has just done something amazing. I remember one time we were having a Bible study over in the Joy Building, and this guy just walked in. And, and everything from my dog not barking at him to everything that happened in that meeting with that guy, there's no other conclusion that Shannon and I can come to other than that guy was an angel. Just, I'm not going to tell you the whole story because it's a long story. But, but then another time when I, I just happened to walk into Denny's at the right time, and there's my friend Lee sitting at the booth um, at the bar there, and then I'm going up and sitting next to him, and it would just happen to be the right moment where he was open and ready to hear um, the word of the gospel and be able to share the gospel with him. Or it, just very similar in Denny's and my wife um, coming in and being able to share the gospel with her. And then just by circumstance, forgetting like a, a dummy, this is you know years ago, but I was just a 19-year-old kid, just re- forgetting to ask her for her number. And she left and like I had no way to get a hold of her, um, but had shared the gospel with her, seemed receptive, very excited. She leaves and I'm like, Oh no, I forgot to get her number. I have no idea where she's staying or how to get a hold of her. I don't have any common friends. And like for two weeks, I stressed out. And then I'm at the radio station and I just decide, you know, a gal told me you should dedicate a song to her. And I was like, well, she's not listening. And I've been on between every song, hoping she is listening. She's not listening. And she says, just dedicate a song to her. I dedicate a song to her. At the same time, she's at home, the Holy Spirit putting on her heart to turn on the radio just miraculously turned it on. It was on that station for, how, for whatever reason. And she hears me dedicate the song. And it's just God just working. And, and, and maybe you had experiences like that before in your life where there's this clandestine meeting. And I, I hesitate to tell you all the details of those stories because I, I really want to um, really make a point concerning this. And that is that these things happen in my life when I'm seeking, when I'm listening, when I'm drawing close to the Lord. That uh, t- t- tends to be the moments that the Lord is speaking to me, or, or should I say, not so much the Lord is speaking to me, but tends to be the moments when I'm listening. Amen? 
And so we're going to see some examples of that in our text today. And so if you'll stand with me, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And starting in verse 22 is where we got to last time. If you don't have a Bible in your hand, you can grab one from the chair in front of you. There should be one there. Or download an app or, or whatever you need to do. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. It says, Now when the days of her purification, Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fallen rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years, who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Israel. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon them. And Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, that is familiar to us, Lord. But I just pray that you'd help us to see it in fresh eyes this morning that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open our hear, ears to, to have ears to hear what your spirit is speaking to us as a church and as individuals this morning. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So unless you grew up living under a rock somewhere, um, you have probably heard the Christmas story. You heard of Elizabeth and Zacharias and how the angel appeared to Zacharias in the temple when he was offering incense and that, um, that Elizabeth in her old age gave birth to a son, John, who'd be the John the Baptist. And then of course, Gabriel heads over to Nazareth, to Galilee to meet with Mary and tells her that she's going to be a mother, um, that she's going to have a child, that he's going to 
be the, the son of the highest, that he's going to be great, that he, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow her, and she's going to give birth to the son of God. I mean, an, a virgin birth. And so it's quite, a, quite an interesting story. And as uh, Mary goes to be with Elizabeth until John is born and then comes back to Nazareth, only to find out that, you know, there's going to be a tax and they have to go down to Bethlehem in a very inconvenient time, right? She's getting ready to give birth. And she gives birth to her firstborn son, and lays, wraps him in swaddling clothes, in rags, literally, and lays him in a feeding trough for a manger. I mean, quite the story. And because there was no room for them in the inn. And then, of course, um, not there at the, at, the, at the manger scene, but rather in the fields around um, Bethlehem, there were shepherds keeping their flocks by night. And, of course, the angel of the Lord showed himself, and the glory of the Lord shone around him. And he said, Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Glory in the highest, for unto you this day is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You know, and, and he's going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And so this, this huge event takes place. Shepherds come and, and see Jesus, and they go marveling and telling everybody about Jesus. And, and this, is the, this is the narrative that we've been looking through, as we've been looking at the early start of Jesus's life. And last time we saw, of course, Mary and Joseph having the baby circumcised on the eighth day, which is the day that the Lord appointed in his law for the baby, a baby to be circumcised, a male child to be circumcised and giving him his name. That was also the day that they would name him. You get, you know, seven days, pretty much eight days to figure out what you know, it's going to be a Fred or a George and, or a Jesus. And of course, they already knew the name, but they named him Jesus and they circumcised him. Now, it's kind of significant that they would circumcise them on the eighth day um, for a couple reasons. One is because in scripture, eight is, you know, is the number of a new beginning. And of course, this is a new baby, and so it's exciting. And of course, it's a new beginning for the nation of Israel that they don't even realize. But also because medically or scientifically, on the eighth day is the one day that for whatever miraculous reason, within the baby, bloodstream of the baby, there is a shot of, of vitamin K that goes through their blood. And as they circumcise them on that day, the blood coagulates. If you circumcise them on the seventh day or the sixth day, or the, even the ninth day, there is the potential that the baby could bleed out. And so it's just the way that God designed them to, to have that happen. Now, in these days, we're much more sophisticated than to wait for eight days. And so we just give them a good shot of vitamin K in the arm and, you know, do the job, you know, if, you, if your baby's circumcised. But anyway, whatever that's worth, um, kind of interesting. And so they, they've, they've circumcised Jesus. They've, they've um, named him. Verse 22, it says, Now when the days of her purification, Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses, were complete, they brought him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So just like we have checkups and milestones with our babies when we have them, well, child checks, those types of things, they had to bring their baby for um, religious reasons, I guess you'd say, or, or according to the law, they'd have to present the baby before the Lord. And that's something that they would do. Now, Mary would have to wait 40 days from the birth of her son, or 33 days from his circumcision, which was 40 days from the birth, which would be the days of purification according to Leviticus um, chapter 12. That was the, the time that they had to wait until they could, you know, um, she could go to the temple if it was a boy. If it was a girl, 
it was 80 days of uncleanness. Now, I don't know why that is. Girls are twice as special. Uh, I don't know what the reason for that is. But anyway, um, they, would, they would give an offering for the mother to cleanse her from her flow of blood, as we see also in Leviticus chapter 12. And they would present the child before the Lord. They would take the child, you know, okay, Lord, here. It's kind of weird. You'd present the Lord before the Lord, but that's what they would do with Jesus. In verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, again, Leviticus chapter 12, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Literally separated or separate for the Lord's purpose. Now, we use words in Christian circles like holy and sanctified. You know, stuff like that. We, we use these words, don't we? You, you use holy and say, both those words mean the same thing. Both sanctified and holy mean the same thing. Um, and what that means is, is not some esoteric, you know, like there's some kind of glow around the person. Or if you looked at them through the right lens, then you'd see a halo around their head or something like that. No, what it means to be holy is it means set apart. And you understand this in your own life. You have certain things that are set apart for your use. And maybe that, you guys, that's your tools. Those are for me. Nobody's to touch them. You touch them, you get in trouble, right? And, and there's a jealousy <laughs> in response to that when, when your kids start getting in there and taking your tools. And, and I think probably as a mother, you have a jealousy, and probably as a father as well, but more so as a mother, you have a jealousy or, or a, a set apartness for your children, Right? You don't want the wrong influences around those children, and you're jealous for them, and they're yours until they're of age to be on their own. But then still, you know, mothers have that connection that that child belongs to me, you know, kind of a, a, a thought. And that's really what this was, is when you were sanctified for the Lord or set apart or holy to the Lord, that means you belonged to the Lord. I have a similar fetish with my coffee cups in my you know I have my coffee cups and I want those for me and if I catch a kid trying to dig dirt with a coffee cup mm, wrath right and so there are these types of things um, that we, we consider holy um, even though maybe not in that that context but that's what the word means is to be set apart for that purpose and and so because the firstborn specifically belonged to the Lord and that was true with the first of everything the first of everything belonged to the Lord they would come to the temple, they would present their child, their firstborn son before the Lord, and they would pay for him. You had to buy your kid back from the Lord. So you come to the temple, you bring five shekels of silver, and this is what it tells us in Leviticus 12, all these details, which is about 100 grams of pure silver, and you would purchase your son, redeem your son back from the Lord, which is something you could do, but not something you had to do necessarily, if you think about it. In fact, there's an example in the Old Testament where this didn't happen. You remember um, the story of H Hannah? Um, Hannah and, and she had a, um, a husband named Elkanah who happened to have another wife named Penina. And so there was somebody in the kitchen with Penina. <laughs> Not such a good scene. You had these two women and, and they were rivals. You know, and that's what it called her, her rival. But the problem was Penina was fertile myrtle. And she kept having these kids, kept having these kids, kept having these kids. And Hannah was like, I don't have any kids. And she goes to Elkanah and she's like, give me a son. Come on. And Elkanah's like, am I not better than 10 sons? She's like, no, you're not. You're not. But anyway, so Hannah goes to the temple. She cries before the Lord. He like accuses her of being wasted. And she's like, no, I'm not drunk. I'm, I'm just crying my petition before the Lord. And then Eli, by the spirit of God, he's a high priest. He, he prophesies and says, the Lord's going to give you your request. You're going to have a son. 
And so she goes away rejoicing, and she has her son Samuel, and she goes presents him for the Lord, but she, and she cleanses herself from the flow of blood, but she doesn't pay the offering. What does she do? She weans the boy, and then as a toddler, two years old probably, she drops him off at the temple, says, here you go, Eli, raise him. That's insane, because Eli was a horrible father. If you read the story, Phineas and Hophni, they were horrible sons and they were just awful and, and God judged him and all his family. But Samuel grew up and he grew up and knew the Lord. Hannah gave him to the Lord. And so she probably didn't redeem him for the five shekels. She probably just gave him to the Lord and he becomes the judge of Israel, the last judge of Israel and a prophet of God. And so this was mandatory for um, the, the flowing or the, the cleansing. And it was also um, mandatory for a sin offering, probably things the woman uttered while she was giving birth. Um, and they'd have to do a sin offering. And then they would, um, they, they would bring the child before the Lord to present him to the Lord. And, and, and we do it differently. Of course, we're not under the law. We, we know in the law, the first of everything belongs to the Lord, right? The first of your income, 10%. The first 10% belong to the Lord. Um, when it came to um, your conquests, you know, and so when the children of Israel came into Israel and they conquested the land, they first took over Jericho. And what did the Lord say about Jericho? The first belongs to me. Do not take anything. Do not touch anything. It belongs to me. After that, they were allowed to take the spoils from every conquest, but the first one belonged to the Lord. And so Achan, you remember that story, Achan ended up bringing judgment upon Israel because he took what was the Lord's when he took the cloak and the money. It, was, it belonged to the Lord, and so it brought judgment upon the children of Israel. The first always belonged to the Lord, and, and the first fruits of your crops belong to the Lord. This kind of solves a mystery for us, maybe if you're willing to accept it. And this is just kind of the, the conclusion I've come to. Because there's always been kind of this question about Cain and Abel. And you're, you, you know the story. They both, both bring their offerings before the Lord. And you read the commentaries and some will say, well, it's because God will only accept a blood sacrifice. And that's not true. He accepted grain offerings as well. And wave offerings and drink offerings and all kinds of things. And so what was it that was acceptable about, Cain, about Abel's offering that wasn't acceptable about Cain's offering? That's a big question. Some people would say, oh, well, Cain brought the crummy vegetables or the crummy crops. I don't think that's true. I think Cain brought his best, honestly. That's what I think Cain, I think Cain had a lot of pride as we see his countenance fall. He had a lot of pride in the offering he brought. Abel brought his first, the firstlings of his flock and of their fat. And so we see God accepting this. What's the difference between the first and the best? The first, there's no promise of a second, is there? Your, your, your calves give birth. You, you, you sacrifice that calf. You don't know that the, calves, the, the lamb's going to give birth again. You know, and so he gave an offering of faith when his, when his, when his um, lambs gave offspring. And, and Cain instead brought an offering, I think, of pride. And so that's the difference. You know, the first belonged to the Lord as an offering of faith. And so um, this was the way that it was. They would bring their first. And we do um, something a little bit different as, as a church. And because Jesus was the first and he was the ultimate offering, he was the ultimate sacrifice. He became the firstborn among many brethren. And so he was our sacrifice. So what do we do with our children? We dedicate them, don't we? And what does it mean to dedicate your children? It means to bring your child up before the, the, the Lord, you know, you bring him before the Lord, bring him before the congregation, and you give your child to the Lord. And don't we, as parents, 
Because that's a hard thing to raise a child. And, and you have these kids. And you, all you want is for them to grow up and be healthy and safe and to know the Lord. You want to know your kid's going to heaven, right? And so you dedicate them to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, they're yours. And I think we do well to do that as parents. Because there is nothing more stressful than to think that you're responsible for the salvation of your child. Instead, let's say, okay, Lord, I'm taking my hands off this kid and I'm giving them to you because you have to bring them to salvation. Because we make a mistake as Christian parents if we think that just because they're born in our house that they're Christians. And as they grow up, we have to disciple them. We have to share the gospel with them. And I think that every one of us as parents has to pray for the salvation of our kids. Because they're not born saved. They're born as sinners. Right? That's what the sin offering is for. And so we, we bring them before the Lord and we say, Lord, we're dedicating, we're giving this child to you so that you could save them. And then we pray for them. We pray for their salvation. I think sometimes the mistake we make as parents as we raise our kids is just to assume they're Christians because they grew up in a Christian home. Actually, they're inoculated with a weaker strain. They've never come down with the real thing. And they grow up with Christianese and Christian life and Christian everything, and they don't really know the Lord. And then as you tell them, hey, you can't act like that as a Christian, they're like, I don't want to be a Christian then. And they run off and go off the deep end. And that's, that's, that's sad and unfortunate. There's no guarantee as Christians that our kids are going to grow up knowing the Lord. And so we have to pray for their salvation and we have to, when they come, become a Christian, disciple them and love them and, and help them to nurture and grow in the Lord. That's just the way that it works. And so Mary and Joseph, they're doing what they can, you know, to, what they know to do for this child. It says, verse 24, to offer a sacrifice and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And, and so th this is interesting because they bring this offering, but this isn't exactly what it says in the law of the Lord. I mean, you read through Leviticus 12, 12, you wouldn't get the impression that this is just what you do. Oh, just bring two, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Not at all. In fact, this is what Leviticus 12 actually says. It says in verse 6, When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from her flow of blood. This is the law of the Lord for her who has born a male or a female. Wait a minute. So it's not two turtle doves. It's a, it's a lamb and a turtle dove or a young pigeon. But there's an exception. And this is weird that God's son would fall under this exception. Notice this. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons as one, one is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. Isn't that interesting? So if she's not able to bring a lamb, well, why wouldn't she be able to bring a lamb? She's allergic to wool. She has a wool allergy, right? No, no. Well, I, I have lambs, but they keep getting wet and they shrink. <laughs> Have you ever wondered that? Why, why can you get a wool sweater and it shrinks when you get it wet, but if you get a lamb wet, it doesn't shrink? Somebody told me last night, it's because it's hot water. So you want to make sure your lambs don't get into hot water. <laughs> They'll shrink right up. No, no, it's because you're poor. You can't afford a lamb. 
Now, that makes sense, and I think we probably could have guessed that easily because you don't just you know, wrap your baby in rags and lay him in a feeding trough if you can afford a blanket and a crib, right? Obviously, if Joseph had any money to speak of, he could have bought his position. He could have, somebody would have slept in the barn instead and given them their room in the inn if Joseph could pay for it. But obviously, he couldn't, and he couldn't even bring the offering that the Lord prescribed. He had to use the exception clause, which is really interesting. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus grew up in abject poverty. Like his first couple of years, they were very, very poor. And, and that was a difficult thing for Joseph and Mary, no doubt. I mean, can you imagine saying, man, God gives us his son and we can't even afford a lamb? How embarrassing. I mean, you, you know what it's like if you've ever been in a situation. I know this is a foster parent. Even though we can afford groceries, when you become a foster parent, you're given WIC checks. And so you go through the line and you have your WIC checks. And people are looking at you like, you know, this takes forever, you know, in the line with WIC checks. You got five WIC checks and you're signing them. And, you, you know, you can just feel the people judge their judgment upon you because you can't, you can't just pay like everybody else. And now here you can imagine Joseph and Mary at the temple and everybody's like, oh, hmm. Yep, two doves. See that? Yeah. They're from Galilee. <laughs> Makes sense. I mean, it's a stigma and you, could, you, could just, you can just feel that like, oh my goodness, you know. Why? Why, God, are you, are, why are you allowing this in our lives? But why? It's because Jesus would have known what it was like to grow up in the most desperate conditions. Nobody could ever be born in, in abject poverty, in some difficult situation, in, in starvation or whatever, and say, no, that's a savior for the rich. That's a God for, for the, the elite class and, and, the, and those who are, are privileged. That's, that's who that savior's for, not for people like me, not for people down here. No, he absolutely was for people at the bottom but not just them, for everyone. And Jesus can relate to us in all of our, our frailties and all of our circumstances and all of our difficulties. He can relate because he's been there and he's experienced it and he's suffered through it. In fact, Paul would say this, speaking of Jesus' glory in heaven to his incarnation on earth in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's what Jesus did. He humbled himself so that he could relate to anybody, absolutely anybody. And to know that, that we have a Savior who understands our frailties. We have a high priest who is not um, ignorant of the difficulties of life. And yet, he lived all those difficulties, all those temptations, all the struggle he went through without sin. And therefore, no matter where we come from, no matter what has happened in our lives, or no matter how humble of a circumstance we, we feel our lives have come from, we can still come before the throne of grace. Because Jesus makes a way for us. Verse 25, it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, a very interesting individual, Simeon, it tells us a couple things about him, that he was a resident of Israel, um, and he was also a, a just man, meaning he lived a morally clean life. You know, he, he did what was right. He, he, you know, didn't do things that were considered socially unacceptable. Um, the word means innocent. He was innocent. 
You know, nobody could say, oh, that guy ripped me off or, or that guy was, you know, I've seen him, you know, he's a jerk, you know, nothing like that. He, he lived a, a morally clean life and he was devout. And what this word means is that he was devoted to God. He had a relationship with God. He walked with God. He knew God. And why was he like that? Because he lived a life that was waiting. Like any day this could happen, his life was all about waiting for the Messiah to come. And, and I, would, I would suggest to you that it was that in his life, believing God is true at his promise and the Messiah could come at any moment, is what purified him, what made him live the way that he lived. There was an expectancy in his life. Not just that God was with him, that God expected things of him, but there was an expectancy that the rest of Israel, the consolation of Israel, which is the title of the Messiah, you'll notice it's capitalized in your Bible, was going to come. He was waiting for the promise of the Messiah. And this should be the same for us. There's nothing in the life of a Christian, the life of a believer, that purifies us, that makes us expectant, more than thinking that Jesus could come back at any moment. And that's exciting for us, especially right now, right? You watch the news a little bit and you're like, Jesus, come back, come back at any time now before the implications of all the things that are happening fall upon us. The division of our, of our country. You know, it's, it's weird, and, and I don't want to be political about anything, but here we go. Um, <laughs> it's amazing to me how... What happens when this tension starts to grow that the right goes far right and the left goes far left so that there can be no balance in between? Do you realize that in, in order for a country to function properly, you need left and right towards the middle? Because you can't just have far to one side and far to the other side. That's civil war. And that's what we're on the edge of, guys. This is why, you know, as Christians, we should be praying, but we also should be excited because these things must come to pass. Right? There, there's difficulties that are facing the world before Jesus comes back. But when we look at the world right now, we want to pray for unity. But we also have to realize that our brothers and sisters, 300 million Christians in China have been praying for years that we would face the same type of persecution that they're facing. And maybe their prayers are being answered. Why do they want us to face the same kind of persecution they're facing? Because they want, us to, they want to see the Holy Spirit working amongst us. They want to see us have real Christian lives. Because what they've observed is that we don't have the faith that they have. This kind of messes with things for me. I don't know. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. It really does. It messes me up because I watch the news. I'm like, I want this to happen. And then I realize, wait a minute. That would be the opposite <laughs> of what they've been praying for. But... This guy, he's, he's expecting the Messiah to come back. This is something that we all should be expecting, except not for the first time, but for the, the second time. In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, it says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, the Thessalonians, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they've turned their lives around, notice this, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This should be what every Christian waits for, for Jesus to come back, to deliver us from the wrath to come. We are to look for him, to watch through him, to be wait for him. 
In fact, John in chapter, um, in John chapter, or first John chapter one, verse three, John tells us that everyone who has this hope of Jesus's return purifies himself just as he is pure. It's a purifying thing. Jesus warns those who say that, that, he, that Jesus delays his coming, that, that there's a danger in that. And as he talks to the disciples and he tells them to watch and to be ready and to not lose heart and to watch because he's, he's going to come. And an hour we do not expect. He says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 42. And the Lord said, then who is faithful and wise, a wise steward, who his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him a ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink with the drunk and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the unbelievers. That's terrifying to think about. You know, could I in my life stop looking for Jesus to come? And, and if, I, if I don't think, well, Jesus isn't going to come, you know, because I, I know I remember my grandma back in the 70s. Oh, my goodness. So long ago saying that Jesus was coming back, and Jesus hasn't come back, and she died. She was sure Jesus was going to come back in her day, and she died. And, and how many people have said over the years that Jesus is going to come back? Every generation for 2,000 years has been saying Jesus is going to come back in their generation. Well, that's a long time, Pastor Mike. I mean, come on, that's not... Really, we're going to wait after 2,000 years? Shouldn't we have given up by now and say, well, I don't know that Jesus is going to come back? It's been 2,000 years. Remember, it's only been a couple days in the Lord's rendering because as days is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day, you know, to the Lord. When, when we think about this, we, we have to realize that there's, there's some certain things that we have to realize. That there's metrics that we have to kind of compare when we think about this. First of all, think about how long it's been since the promise was given about the Messiah coming. From Simeon's day to the first promise of the Messiah coming, you know how long it's been? Four thousand years. Remember Genesis three fifteen, and the the there'd be a, a seed of the woman, speaking of a virgin birth, that would crush the head of the serpent, that would take away the authority that the serpent gained over them in the Garden of Eden. That was four thousand years earlier. He's still waiting. Of course, you know there was some people saying, you know, hey, the Lord's coming, the Lord's the Messiah is coming. Abraham, of course, remember Abraham. When he, had, um, he, when he had his promise from God that he was going to have a son, he says, through your seed, singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Speaking of the Messiah, there's going to be the Messiah. It's going to come through you. No doubt he thought it was Isaac. No doubt Adam and Eve thought it was Cain. Remember? Oh, I've obtained a man from the Lord. Hey, this is exactly what God promised. And then Abel. Oh, look, I've got another man. And then Cain killed Abel. And like, oh, no, it wasn't either one of those guys. You know, Cain's bad. Abel's no longer Abel. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. So bad. So bad. And so then she had another son, and she's like, look, the Lord's appointed one to take over for Abel, to be the Messiah. And it was Seth. It means appointed. Was he? No. It wasn't until 4,000 years later that Jesus would be born. And this whole time, people, faithful people, were waiting for the Messiah to come, the one who would undo what the serpent did. We've only been waiting 2,000 years. And of course, they promised a thousand years before this through David, but still, that's a long time. 
We need to be patient. But when we're thinking of Jesus coming, we have to realize that there are some promises related to that, that we're going to be kept from the wrath to come, as he mentioned to the Thessalonians. But also, in Luke chapter 21, verse 36, he says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's one option. But the other option is what he said in Revelation 3.3 to the church of Sardis. When he says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know the hour that I come upon you. He's going to come as a snare to the whole world, as a thief in the night to those who don't believe, but as a groom for his bride to those who are waiting and watching. And so as Christians, we should watch. Is Jesus going to come back in our day? Yes, I believe he is. Why? Because I'm supposed to believe that. And so are you. And so is Paul. And so is every other Christian that's ever lived. We were supposed to believe that Jesus was going to come back in our day. And, and we're to hold to that promise. Now, I believe we have more reason to believe than they did. Why? Because we're closer, obviously, by 2,000 years. But the other reason is because of what's happening in the news. Now, I'm not talking about yesterday's headlines or what happened on Wednesday. You know, certainly those, those are things that, you know, get our attention. But there's been tumults and riots and there's been nations rising and falling for 2,000 years. So what's significant about what is happening in the news today versus what happened in the news, let's say, 100 years ago? One is that when you read in the news, it will say, in Israel. In Israel? Yeah, because Israel's only been around since 1948. And it tells us in Ezekiel 38 that in the last days, Israel will be dwelling in the land. It tells us that God will, will pull them from every nation of the world and bring them back into the land. And when Israel is dwelling safely in the land, then all the nations around her who will be her enemies will come against her. Now, these were nomadic tribes and factioning kingdoms, you know, sometimes allies, sometimes not during the time when Isaiah wrote those and Ezekiel wrote those prophecies. But now they're all Islamic nations. They're all Muslims. And they all hate Israel with a passion, passion hatred. It fits exactly what the Bible tells us would happen in the last days as Israel's dwelling in the land. And so we know from the headlines that Israel is a nation that we are probably very, very close. There's an expiration date on these things, guys. And so to live life as though Jesus is going to come back at any moment. And Simeon certainly lived as though the Messiah would come at any moment. Because, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. So the Lord spoke to him, let him know that he was going to live to see the Messiah. Now, if we know anything about the way the Lord works, and if you've ever experienced the Lord working in your life, you know that this is probably how it happened. Simeon got to the point where he's like, I should have died 10 years ago. And God is very patient. And Simeon's getting older and older and older. Now, we don't know that because it never tells us actually that Simeon was old. You realize that? It doesn't say he was an old guy. Maybe he was just really sick. I don't know. Probably old. But he, he knew by a prophetic word that the Lord was going to let him see the Lord's Christ. Now, we don't, we're not given that prophetic word concerning the second coming of Jesus, right? Because it comes as a thief in the night, and Jesus said, you all well know, no man knows the day or the hour. 
We don't set dates. God's not going to tell somebody if you hear a voice of, and you think it's God, and he's saying, I'm going to come back in the rapture of the church on this day. You can know it's not going to happen on that day. Right? No man knows the day or the hour. And so Simeon knew by a prophetic word that the Lord was going to give him this promise. And it's, it's a, a word of knowledge from the Lord. Now, this is something that the Lord still does today. He still gives people words of knowledge. He still gives people prophetic um, understanding of, of things that are going to happen. And, and I know sometimes we don't call them that, but I think that we should call them that because otherwise we don't get used to what's happening and don't understand biblically what's happening to us. Just to give you an example, I was, I was in a secret clandestine meeting one time. There was five of us. Uh, it, was, it was announced to the whole church, but only five people showed up. And it was a prayer meeting. And we're all there praying and seeking the Lord. And we're just, we just had a time within the prayer meeting. We prayed through all the things that we wanted to pray through. And now we're just, we had a time of just waiting on the Lord, a silence. We're just all sitting there just waiting on the Lord. And all of a sudden, I felt this strong, let me just call it something weird to our ears. I'll just call it a strong spirit of intercession. I had a huge desire all of a sudden to pray for Jesse Hurless. And, and so I just started to pray for him. And, and what had happened is Jesse, um, you know, early on he came to the church and him and I, you know, were, were kind of, I don't know, just working in ministry together. And the Lord told me very clearly, again, a prophetic utterance, a word of knowledge, that, that Jesse was going to be a big part of our ministry. But then some personal things happened in Jesse's life, and he went through some loss and some tragedy, and, and the enemy got a hold of him, and he just kind of went the other way and stopped coming to church for about eight months. Well, I, I, the Lord told me to stop calling him, because I would call him and try to check in every once in a while, and the Lord told me to stop calling him, so I stopped calling him. But then that night, I had this strong impression I was supposed to call Jesse. That night, I had a dream, and it was about him and his wife. And so I called him and said, hey, I'd like to get together with you. And he's like, yeah, we probably should. And I said, let's meet Thursday. And so we met. And um, when I sat down with him, I, I just, I said something to him. And I, I had no idea what I was saying, but what I was saying to him was a word of knowledge. And the reason it was a word of knowledge is because he had sat in his car that morning in frustration, trying to talk to God, and he said the exact same words. And so when I said it, his eyes got really big, and he's like, what did you say? And I thought he was going to jump up and pop me in the face. And I said, let me explain. He says, you don't have to explain. I was sitting in my car. I uttered those exact same words. And he knew God's after me. God's listening to me, and now I'm in trouble. I need to repent. And he repented, and God turned his life around, and now he's pastoring a church. You know, God, he's pursuing us, and he uses us for those secret missions sometimes. It was very similar to what happened with Mike Buck. You know, as I was coming, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I came back to my office after talking to the people from, Calvary, or from the Sweet Vineyard, and I was like, Lord, who's the pastor of that church? Who do you want to pastor that church? And the Lord said so clearly to me, Mike Buck. And I was like, <clears throat> excuse me, hang on, what? Who? No, no, that's not right. No, it's Mike Buck. Okay, all right, well, that's impossible because the conversation I just had with Mike, that's never going to happen. And so I called Mike in, I'm like, that's weird, but I was praying, and you know, I didn't tell him the whole details. I didn't want to put any heavy on him, but I just told him, I think the Lord wants you to you know, share at this church up in suites one time. Just try it out and see if the Lord say anything to you. Uh, that's not really what I'm after. I'm like, yeah, I know, but... You know, I felt like the Lord told me to tell you that. Okay. And so he did. And he told me, he actually said, I tried to bomb. 
I tried to fail, you know, when I went up there to preach. And like afterwards, they're like, so you're going to take the job? <laughs> and, and now he's the pastor there. But the Lord told me ahead of time. Otherwise, I, and, and confirmed it and, you know, put everything in order for Mike and, and got his mind in the right place and everything. And the Lord worked all that out. But that's, that's what the Lord does. He works through people. He speaks to us. And I think sometimes we don't, we don't hear God. You know, and it's not because God isn't speaking. It's because we're not expecting Oh, let me say it a different way. I think sometimes God's speaking, but we're just not listening. How many times did Jesus say, let he who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. And, and what's the difference between somebody who's hearing God and somebody who's not hearing God? Well, it's what we mentioned at the beginning. It's somebody who's expecting God, who's following God, who's pursuing God. And their life is about Jesus. He's the Lord of their lives. In other words, he's their master. He tells them where to go and what to do, and they're following that direction. What's the opposite of that? That's, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm going where I want to go. I'm manipulating circumstances so I can get what I want out of life, and I'm trying to control everything. The disciple is something very different. And in fact, when we come to church here on Sunday, and maybe I just want to clear this up for some of you, I feel like the Lord said something to me about this um, more recently as I was asking him questions about our church and things. I, I want to clear up to you the reason why you're here, okay, for one. And, and um, I, I say this because I think many of you understand why you're here, but I think also many of you don't understand why you're here. I, you're not here so that I can tell you what to do. You're not here so I can, can, you know, can control your life and give you the rules, you're also not here so that you can um, earn brownie points for God. Like, okay, I'm in church like I'm supposed to be, and I feel good about myself because I got, went to church on Sunday. That's not why you're here. If you are here for those reasons, you're here for the wrong reasons. Why you're here is to be discipled. Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all, to observe all things and to baptize them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we, we bring you here, we open up baptism, we baptize you, and every week, day in and day out, we disciple you. And what are we discipling you into? We are discipling you into a relationship with Jesus Christ, period. It is not for us to tell you what God wants you to do. It is not for us to tell you how you're supposed to live your life, um, other than what the scripture says. But that is not a, a list of rules. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're wasting my time and you're wasting your time. Because this has nothing to do with anything else. This has to, has to do with you walking with God and having a relationship with him and hearing his voice and following him and doing what he tells you to do. And if you live that life, you're going to live a very exciting life. If you live the other system, it's going to be very frustrating. Because church isn't about clocking time or trying to earn something from God or like, oh God, I've gone to church all my life and why are you letting this happen to me? You know, it's, it's about knowing Jesus and following him. It's about salvation. What did Jesus say about salvation? He says, this is eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 17. Or John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he is, you have sent. Our job as Christians is to know God. 
to hear his voice, to follow him where he leads us. And, and that's what we should be seeking to do. And that's what our quiet time is about. That's what our Bible reading is about. That's what our small group is about. That's what our prayer time is about. It's about growing in a deeper relationship with God because he is life. That's what this is all about. That's why we're here. And when God has relationship with us, he speaks to us. He will speak to you about your life. Um, in Psalm chapter 25, in verse 14, it says, The secrets of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. If you're willing to listen, we can be used by God to do the work that he has for us. If we're just trying to push our own agenda and not yielding to him, you know, you're probably not going to hear much from the Lord. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says this, Surely the Lord God does, not, does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And, and certainly we have a different relationship than they did in the Old Testament. And we no longer have to go um, to a, a prophet or to a priest to have a relationship with God. No, Jesus in these last days has become our mediator between God and man. And we can go directly before the throne room of grace because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we have the access to God. Verse 27, it says, So he came by the Spirit, um, uh, Simeon comes by the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to him um, um, to do for him according to the custom of the law, and so pause right there for a second, uh, just being led by the Spirit, and much like Philip was led by the Spirit when he went into, you know, the, the angel told him to go into the middle of the desert, and he went out in the middle of the desert, and then the Spirit told him, overtake that chariot. And so he ran after this chariot, Ethiopian eunuch, happens to be reading, divine appointment happens to be reading right in the middle of Isaiah 53, no better place in the Old Testament to read about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And he's able to share the gospel with him and then he baptizes them and then Philip just disappears and, and the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way, you know, mesmerized. You know, it's like, wow, what in the world? That was crazy. Um, but, but God's leading Simeon by the Spirit. Simeon was watching and waiting and listening, and the Lord told him, head out to the temple for this appointment. I love it when the, when the Lord does stuff like this. And you probably have experienced, if you can think about your life as a Christian, you've probably experienced God do things like this. I, was, I just heard a story the other day. A woman was in the grocery store, and she was just shopping, and all of a sudden, she saw this old woman and a young woman, older woman and a younger woman, um, shopping together, big cart full of groceries, and well-dressed, not looking poor, shabby, or depressed, or anything like that. They're just going through the store, and the Lord impressed upon this woman, her name is Wendy, she impressed upon her heart, buy the groceries for those women. And so she's like, I don't want to embarrass them, like I would assume, oh, you look, you look like you need somebody to buy your groceries for you or something like that. And so she was a little bit nervous about it. But then she thought to herself, you know what? When the Lord presses something like this upon my heart, it's usually best that I obey it. And so she just went up to the women in the line as they're getting ready to check out. And she said, hey, um, I, 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 I've been following you around. The Lord told me to buy your groceries. And the younger woman just started to bawl. She started to cry. And um, and so she bought their groceries. She accepted graciously. She said, oh, thank you so much. You know, bought her groceries. They went out and she started to check out her groceries. And then the old woman comes back in. And then she comes back and she said, you'll never understand what that was all about. She said, my daughter has been married for years. Her husband has been abusive. He just left her with her kids. They're broke. They're, they're really strapped. She said, I'm on a fixed income. I was going to buy some groceries for them because they didn't have any groceries. 
and, and it was kind of going to be difficult. And, and, and yet, even more so than that, what this means to us is my daughter was, we were just having a conversation before we came here, and she said, I don't even know if God cares about me. In fact, I don't even know if God is real. And so she said, we prayed together that God would reveal himself to her. And see, that's the way that the Lord works. And you've probably been a part of that, and you've heard these stories. We love to hear the, those divine appointments. And no doubt this had been a blessing to Simeon, a man who walked with the Lord for so long. And now he he's gets to see the Messiah. But also, what this would do for Mary and Joseph. It says, verse 28, and of course, this is a very different time than it would be today, because today we would call the police. But it says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So notice the language. He's saying, now I can die. I can depart in peace. You know, old, old people say these types of things, not young people, unless they're really sick. Um, he... he it, again, he doesn't tell us that Simeon was old, but kind of get the idea from the language that he wasn't young. He, he feels like he's accomplished what God has created him, what he sent him to do. And I wonder that about myself often. And I wonder that about you. Do you feel like God, like you have accomplished in this life what God created you for and sent you here for this time, for this place to do? Have you done that? I talk to so many people who, who tell me, I, I feel like I've wasted my life. Or I, I feel like the Lord called me into ministry, but then I, I, I shied away from it. I did something else. Or, or I put it off and I put it off and I put it off. And now I feel it's too late. You know, it, we don't want to live like that, especially in a day and age like we live now. Am I doing what God has called me to do? Am I allowing the people around me to be fulfilled in the calling that God has given them? Because this is, these are important things. You know, I love my wife. She's, she's great because I know that I can't do anything without her. And I remember early on one time um, asking her, you know, I feel like God's calling me to ministry. Are you good with that? And, and I had to have her say, yeah, whatever the Lord calls us to, that's what I'm, I'm with you. And, and yet, if she would have said, no, I'm not good with that. I, you think you should work a regular job and give us nice things and, you know, build us a nice house. And I, I would have done that because I can't, we can't, unless we're agreed, we can't go in the same direction. You know, I would have done ministry wherever I could. But, but it really was freeing to have a wife who would say, yeah, I'm, I, whatever the Lord wants, that's what I want. I remember that time when Jesse and Kathy were talking about going to Alaska. <laughs> and and um, they talked about it, and then they stopped talking about it. And I, and I asked Jesse one time, I said, so what's going on with Alaska? And he says, it's a dead subject, man. I was like, what do you mean it's a dead subject? Well, I can't talk about it. Kathy just gets mad at me. Really? What's going on? Well, she just she's worried about my health. She's worried about the baby. She's pregnant. You know, she's having a baby. <laughs> and I said, well, have you been praying about it? No. Well, you should probably pray about it. So he prayed about it. And like two days later, she's like, when we go to Alaska, <laughs> and he's like, what? <laughs> you know, what's going on? And he's like, do you really want to go to Alaska? And she's like, yeah, I just didn't want to have this baby in Alaska. But now that I know I'm going to have the baby here, it was like a month away. I think I'm good. I think let's go, you know? 
God's timing's everything, you know, but you got to make sure that you're on board with each other, but also that you're not holding each other back. You know, God's time, he has timing on things. But this is, this is beautiful. He, he's like, God's, you know, my eyes have seen your salvation. Of course, Jesus' name, name means God's salvation. And, and this is important. He says, you are prepared before the face of all peoples. Abraham promised that his seed would be a blessing to every family on the earth, right? The, the, the Messiah would be a blessing, not just for the Jewish nation, not just for Abraham's family, but for every family will be blessed through the Messiah. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse, four, verse 6, could be what, um, what Simeon's alluding to. It says, indeed, he said, is it too small a thing that you, this is speaking of Jesus, um, prophecy of Jesus, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so we know from prophecy, Re Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, that Paul says, do not be ignorant concerning the nation of Israel, that blindness in part has happened to them until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, verse 26, he tells us all Israel will be saved. And so this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. He is going to restore Israel. He's going to restore the kingdom back to them. He's going to restore the nation. And all of Israel is going to be saved. He is the deliverer for them. But he's also the deliverer for us. I think sometimes we can get, lose sight of that. And for years, it, you know, it was hard to keep that in our sights because Israel hasn't been a nation for 2,000 years. Then all of a sudden in 1948, they became a nation again. Had to adjust everybody's theology. And some people just wouldn't adjust their theology. Nope, we're Israel. Uh, not really. You know, you're the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles has got to come in. Then Israel will be saved. If you're Israel now, you're in blindness, which doesn't make any sense, right? So blindness in part is going to happen to Israel until all... The Gentiles come in, we are the Gentile church, and then all of Israel will be saved. And Jesus would bring light and revelation to the Gentiles. That means those who aren't Jewish could be saved. And that was a big question in the early church. Today, people might ask, can Jews be saved? They killed the Messiah, you know, and people say stuff like that. And it gives them opportunity to be anti-Semitic. Even, even Martin Luther was anti-Semitic. But... That's kind of funny because, and ironic because in the first century, for the first 12 years of the church, that was the big question. Can Gentiles be saved? They believed the Messiah came to save all the Jews in the whole world, <laughs> but not the Gentiles. Until Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his, his group got saved. And so, you know, we have to realize that God has a plan for the Gentiles, for the nations of the world, which we're a part of, but he also has his promises to Israel, which will not go undone. As long as the sun rises and the sun sets and the moon has its circuit, the, God's promises to Israel, the nation will stand. We know that um, from scripture. And so um, this, is, this is something that was revealed about Jesus early on. He's going to be a light to the Gentiles. Then verse 33, it says, and Joseph, and Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Hmm. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This is where it gets kind of spooky. You know, I don't know if we like spooky prophecy. I'm not a big fan of spooky prophecy. 
think sometimes it's abused and overused. Um, but if it's from the Lord, then it's, it's good. You know, I, I've had the Lord tell me things that I, I, I don't want. You know, things that I didn't want to hear. Things that were uncomfortable. In fact, I, I was just telling my wife something after last night, after going through this passage. The Lord told me something a year ago that I didn't want and I've been fighting against for a year. Finally told her this morning what the Lord had told me. Sometimes we, and I still don't know that I want it. I don't like it, actually. But it's the right timing. And God's timing is everything when it comes to those things. This is something that Mary didn't want. This is speaking of Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, a, a sword is going to pierce through your soul. Not literally, but Mary's going to stand there and watch her son be crucified. And it doesn't matter how old your children are. You never expect them to die before you. That is something that is the worst thing that could happen in terms of relationship is the loss of a child. And, and, and now Mary knows that he's, he, this is something's going to happen, something that's going to break my heart, that's going to pierce my heart to its core is going to happen. And why does God prepare Mary for this? Because for whatever reason, when bad things happen, when horrible things happen, when we know that this is what God has ordained, it's somehow just a little bit easier to know that God's in control. And even if God hasn't given us any promises, we still have that assurance. God is in control. Nothing is happening that he is not allowed to happen. And, and that gives us peace. You know, and sometimes we don't know why, but if we seek God in the midst of that struggle and that confusion, and why is this happening? How did I lose my child? And we say, God, help me. And, and Lord, you promise a peace that passes understanding that he gives us a supernatural peace that carries us through the turmoil that we're in. You know, we're going through some stuff right now that we need to continually seek the Lord for that peace. To, to every time a new wave of disappointment and, and you know, stupidity comes at us, we, we say, okay, Jesus, we know you're in control. Lord, give us your peace, carry us through. And he does. He carries us through. I, I don't, I'd go insane. People would die if I didn't have that. I mean, I'd be, things I'd be in jail. Pastor goes to jail, you know. <sighs> you know? You have, to, you have to have the peace of the Lord. You have to have the peace of the Lord. Verse 36, it says, Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So rude of Luke. You should never tell a woman's age. But here he tells us that she, from her virginity, now let's just say earliest estimates, she's married at, let's say 14, 13. Let's say 13, 13. And, and I know that's really young, but in their culture, sometimes they did get married young like that. So let's say she's married at 13. She's married for seven years, right? So she's now, you know, her husband dies when she's 20. And then add 84 to that of, of her, she's been a widow for 84 years. She's over 100 years old. She's in her mid to low hundreds or late hundreds if or late tens, how does that work? Anyway, somewhere in there, mathematically, um, she's up there in age over 100, no matter how you cut it. I and mean, this is an old woman. I mean, Simeon was old. She is well stricken in years, as we saw with Elizabeth. Um, but she's a prophetess. 
And she comes in, and when she hears, and this is something that, that the Lord does, when you hear a word from the Lord spoken by somebody else over another person, you, you, the Holy Spirit's in you. You're like, that was the Lord, right? I remember one time, it was, it was me and Jim and Ben Parkin, Jim Colburn. I won't point him out. But we're sitting there, and um, oh, and Jesse Hurlis. And Jesse was talking to Jim, and Jim was talking, and, and Jesse said something to Jim, and Ben looked at me and said, that was a word of knowledge. And I said, yeah, it was. And, and Jim was like, yeah, it was. You know, it was, it was just amazing, you know, and you just knew, you just know. When, God, when the Spirit of God is moving, you just know, right? And so she knew. This was, this was the word of the Lord. And, and so it says, in coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. She begins to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord! And spoke to him of all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So every time anybody came to temp, the temple for the next 20 years, as she's getting older and older and older, I don't know how long she lived. But everybody who came in who's looking for God's Messiah, she's like, oh, I saw the Messiah. He came in here just a couple of days ago. You know, she, she was a, a witness to that. Started sharing with everybody. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, their own city. Now, um, this is editorialism. You know, J Luke is telling us this, but he's also, it's actually, there's a few more things that are going to happen. We know this from the, the Gospel of Matthew. As you do a harmony of the Gospel, you can... Um, you can kind of piece things together. But he's not saying they went right to Nazareth. It kind of makes it sound like that, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying eventually, you know, he just is going to skip the other parts that have already been recorded by Matthew. In Matthew, it tells us that after this, they went back to Bethlehem, probably thinking to themselves, well, the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Maybe we're supposed to stay here. And so they stayed in Bethlehem for another year, maybe year and a half. That's when the wise guys from the east side came with their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You guys remember that story? Matthew tells us that they came. He was a young child at that time. If you believe that that happened at the manger scene, sorry to disappoint you. Gold would have made big difference about the whole sheep situation. <laughs> and so they hadn't received the gold yet. So this is, happens within the next year and a half or so. And then Herod finds out about it. And because he knows that the star showed up just about two years ago, he has all the... Um, the first or the two, uh, two years and under killed in Bethlehem, all the male children. And so the angel tells Joseph and Mary to flee to Egypt. They're there for a couple of years until Herod dies. And then as they're coming back, they're going to go back to Bethlehem, thinking this is where we're supposed to be. Bethlehem's the city of the Messiah. And, the, and they're told, no, go to Nazareth. And so Jesus, as a young child, go, goes to Nazareth. He grows up in Nazareth. And that's how he'd become um, a Nazarene or how he'd be, be Jesus of Nazareth. And so Kind of filling in all the gaps, um, harmonizing the Gospels. That's how that flows. And in verse 40, it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with, the, with, with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Jesus grows and becomes strong and becomes filled with wisdom. Wait a minute. I thought that he could probably speak every language, knew everything, came out of the womb talking. No. He humbled himself. And we read that in Philippians chapter 2. We don't realize the implications of it sometimes. That even though he, he was God, he did not consider Robert to be equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. Taking on the form of a man. And, and as a man, he grew up and became a servant. Lowest class of man. 
And, and, and he didn't pick up the, the deity that he had. In fact, it tells us that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. It also tells us that Jesus did nothing except the Father told him to do it. The implication of that was, is he literally became frail just like us and didn't speak and probably until the normal time of a child speaking. There was nothing about him that was significant. He grew up and he gained favor with man. He grew in wisdom. He grew in strength and stature. Just like you and me. And why? Because he wants to be able to relate to us. We don't have a high priest that can't relate to us in our frailty and our weaknesses. He grew up. He was tempted in all ways that we are except without sin. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he did his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own power. That was part of what Satan was trying to get him to do. To show his deity in his own strength to create bread out of a rock or to do whatever he... And Jesus refused to do it. I'm only going to do what the Father tells me to do. And so Jesus would grow up and he would suffer and he would go through life just like you and me and he'd depend on the Father and he'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and he'd perform his miracles through the Holy Spirit just like God expects you to do. Just like the life that God expects you to live. And that's why Peter can say he is our example that we should follow in his steps. That wouldn't be really fair if he was, you know, God-man, you know, performing his God powers on his own. No, he didn't. He resisted that. He could have come off the cross. He could have stricken everybody dead. He could have done anything. But he humbled himself and became as a man, completely man. And though still completely God, and yet didn't use that power on his own. But what that tells me about Jesus is that he, he, he grew in, in knowledge and wisdom. And so too, for us, we need to grow in a relationship with the Lord and in knowledge and wisdom and in strength in our Christian walks too. And I hope that you do. And I hope that that is why you're coming here so that you can grow into strength as a Christian through a relationship with Jesus. Because that's why we're here. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for these passages that are familiar to us, but I pray that as we look at them, we would truly um, see new things, Lord. That you would help us to grow in you, Lord that we would take our relationship with you very seriously and that we would walk in relationship with you. Not just coming to fulfill a religious duty or trying to be spiritual or whatever we think to enhance our life or to make ourselves look good, but, but to truly know you, Jesus. To walk with you, to trust you, to follow you, to hear your voice. So speak to us and grow us in you, Jesus. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Man, we stand with me.